You're listening to the Caroline Springs Anglican Podcast. Great to have you with us here tonight. And uh, we're just going to do now what we love to do at this church, and that's just take a text from Scripture and work through it verse by verse and see what God has for us. But before we get to Exodus 1, 8 to 22, I'll just do a quick recap for last week, because I know most of you weren't here uh, when we did that. And, and so last week we really um, set the framework for the book of Exodus by setting it in the, in the bigger framework of the whole story of the Bible. So uh, one way we like to describe the, the story of the Bible here is that uh, we say it's got four parts, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. So we saw right at the beginning, Genesis 1, God just out of the overflow of his creativity and self-sufficiency and community, he, he kind of just spills out onto the canvas of creation and he, he designs a world that is just humming with rhythm in perfect harmony, right? So his relationship with his creatures, their relationship with one another is perfect in every way. And so that's creation. And then by the next page of the Bible, we've got the fall. And this is where Adam and Eve choose to turn their back on God, choose to, uh, to, to, to uh, set themselves up to be gods. Um, they reject God's sovereignty and his um, and his care of them, and they pursue their own ends, um, believing the lie of the serpent rather than the words of God. And so you have the fall, and ever since that moment in history, uh, the world has echoed with brokenness and sin, and we experience that every day, right? The effects of that first sin. And so we have creation, we have fall, and then right in that chapter, right, God doesn't waste any time um, um, saying, I told you so, right in the middle of that chapter, right after the fall, at Genesis 3.15, he makes a promise. And this is the first glimpse of the gospel that we get in God's word. So in, in verse 15, he says, to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And, and this is... Theology nerds call this the Proto-Euangelion, right? The, f- the first gospel. This is the first little glimpse we get of God saying uh, to Satan, to the serpent, representative of, of sin and brokenness and evil, he says, there is going to be a one that I will raise up out of the line of Adam and Eve who will crush your head. He will overcome sin and brokenness in the world. He will be the redeemer of my People. And so we saw last week that this began, uh, first of all, in the garden with the message to the serpent, but then God, uh, in order to enact this promise, rose up out of nothing uh, a man named Abraham. God chose him not because of uh, anything about him that was good or desirable. He just chose him unconditionally and said, you are going to be the man from whom I draw this nation who's going to bless uh, all the peoples of the world, even to Caroline Springs and even Hopper's Crossing. All right, so that's, that was the promise of God. And then so from that point on, you have this tenuous, kind of tense um, storyline in the Bible where God has to protect his people. He has to protect these people, the people of Israel, in order to fulfill his promise. His promises are tied to the fortunes of these people. And we see from the beginning that God's promises are therefore under threat from both without and from within, right? From enemies uh, of the Israelites as well as the Israelites themselves. Enemies without and the enemies of their hearts within. Constantly putting God's promises under threat. 
And so he takes Abraham, he takes Sarah, he's 100, she's 90, he gives them a, a, a son named Isaac, and then he has a son named Jacob, and eventually uh, Jacob on his uh, deathbed makes his way into Egypt where his son Joseph had been sold into slavery and is now uh, second in charge of that great nation, and it's there that we pick up the book of Exodus, now 400 years after Jacob first enters into Egypt. And they've gone from 70 people who entered now to many hundreds of thousands of people, God fulfilling his promise to make them a fruitful nation. Now, the problem is that 400 years later, no one remembers who Joseph was. And like so many stories of economic migration, right, where the, the, the home nation initially invited in the migrants to kind of work and, and, and contribute to the society. Now the migrants have got too many, and so the home nation wants to get rid of them. Sound familiar? Still happens, right? So that's exactly what's happening here. If you want to take a look at it, in Exodus chapter 1, verse 8 to 10, it says, Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous and, if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. Kind of a paranoid thing to think, but this is very much at the forefront of Pharaoh's mind. He sees the Israelites as a threat to be overcome. And so he says, and speaking with his advisors, now standing uh, with his advisors as the most powerful man in the world, There's, he is without equal, right, in the most powerful nation in the world, and he stands with them and he knows his stuff. He says, we need to deal shrewdly with these people. This is, this is an issue we need to manage. Just as Hitler stood with his advisors and, and talked with them about managing the Jewish problem, right? Here's Pharaoh standing with his advisors. We need to manage this problem. We need to deal shrewdly with these people. And plan A that they come up with is uh, a plan to uh, oppress the Israelites. And, um, and I, think, I, I like to think of it as like plan A is death by work. And it's a really... Brilliant plan, death by work, because here it's win-win, right? We're going we're gonna to subjugate these people. We're going to put them to work. We're going to make them work to the point that they, they die. And therefore, they won't be able to grow in number. They won't be able to multiply at the rate that they have been. And at the same time, we've got all, our, all our public projects are going to get done. Right? Our, our, the, the Egyptian council workers are just leaning on shovels all the time. Right? Nothing's getting done. And so, that was a joke. Are, are you all council workers or something? Jeez. All right. So, um, and so he says, we'll just get these guys to do it. We're going to, do it, we're going to work them so hard that we'll get all of our projects up and, and we'll be able to oppress these people. But in verse 12, this is what it says. The outcome isn't exactly what they were hoping for. Verse 12 the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. So here's a theme that emerges early in the book and really will carry on throughout the book, but particularly in this first half, chapters 1 to 18, that we're going to be focusing on for the rest of this year. You're going to see that 
the more Pharaoh tries to oppose God's plans and his people, the more God succeeds in his plans to protect them. The more that Pharaoh works against God's providential plan, the, the more he tightens the noose around his own neck. And really, you can see this throughout history. From Genesis 3.15, where God says to the serpent, you're going to get crushed, and the serpent's response since then has been to work against God's plans and purposes. We see this all throughout. It's not just uh, the serpent working through Pharaoh to diminish God's plans and purposes and, and to oppress his people, but it's right throughout history. Even if you just take the 20th century, you've got... This was exactly what, what happened in the, in the Soviet bloc. This is, right, under communism, you, you oppress Christians, you shut down churches, you make it illegal to conduct services that aren't government-authorised uh, services. You saw it as well in Mao's China, exactly the same thing. I saw it in the 70s in Ethiopia. They had what was called the Red Terror Regime, where they shut down churches, burned churches down, and uh, killed Christians, killed 1.5 million people in that case. And the question always is, after you come through these regimes, and by God's grace they are put down, What's the state of the church going to be? And over and over and over again, it turns out the church grows. Not only is it not subjugated, it grows, it flourishes. The old saying is that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That the more you try and kill the church, the more it flourishes. And that's what happened in this case with the people of God in Israel. The more that Pharaoh tried to kill, to wipe them out, the more they got up and grew fruitful again. And there's a little Hebrew play on words pun here that I'm not going to go into because uh, you already think I'm enough of a nerd. So here's, here's the thing. All throughout this book, you're going to see God's hand at work to achieve his purposes. But whereas in the second part of the book, we see it in manifest miraculous ways like plagues and parting the Red Sea and, and fire and smoke, right? Whereas that comes in, in, in the latter part of the book, right now, if you're in this situation, stuff is going really wrong and you can't see God's hand. Right? The people in this situation are seeing the, their world turn upside down. They're seeing the most powerful man in the world turn against them, wanting to eradicate them, and they can't see what God is up to. So I had this really um, challenging conversation with a woman after the service this morning who was like, I, I get all that about God being powerful and good and sovereign and he has purposes, but right now I'm not seeing him anywhere. Like I'm trying to be faithful and I'm not seeing him anywhere. So... I take it there's going to be people like that here tonight. So I've got a question for you, and, I, and I, want, I want your thoughts on this, right? The question is, how do you trust God when things are bad and he is hidden? Any ideas? Any testimonies? Yeah. Yeah. So you look back, see what he's promised in the past and how he's fulfilled his promises. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, so if you've ever been prayed for, um, like if you're in the midst of any kind of suffering, you've probably heard us pray for you uh, that God would heal you, that he would save you, that his hand would come down and rescue you in miraculous ways, and we'd pray that you would have patience and perseverance in the midst of suffering while you wait. The patience, perseverance is, a, is an important part of it, for sure. Any other thoughts, right? So, there are people here sitting tonight who, who are sitting in the dark, right? They're sitting in the dark and they can't see God's hand at work. So what are you going to say to them? Remember, be patient, meditate on the gospel. What, is, what does that look like? Yeah, cool. So remembering the gospel, preaching the gospel to yourself, um, remembering. So I love what John says, you know, in his first letter to the church, who's the church that's suffering. He says, how do we know that God loves us? Right? You get, you're, you're suffering, you're being imprisoned, you're being killed. How do we know that God loves us? He sent his son to die for us. That's how we know. That's the objective fact of the matter. And so reciting the gospel to yourself. Also, that's what we want to be as a church, right? People helping people make all of life all about Jesus. That's just another way of saying, we, or a big part of that at least, is telling each other the gospel. One of the best things you can do if you're in a season of darkness is just go to someone you know at the church and say, can you preach the gospel to me? I need to hear the gospel right now. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Jesus can empathize with us in this situation. He knows what it is to um, to see God turn His face away. He knows what it is to pray, "Father, take this cup from me. Not my will, but Yours be done." He knows what that it's like to experience that. One other thing I would just I would I would encourage you in is to cultivate around you people in this church who are ready and waiting to pray for you. Right? So my experience of this kind of darkness, which at times in my life has extended for a long period of time, is that in those moments I find it very difficult to pray, even just to get the words out. But one of the most beautiful things one of my mentors said to me was like, when I told him this and I felt ashamed and I was worried what he would say to me about not being able to pray, he was like, that's fine, just get someone else to pray for you. It was a weight lifted off me. Yeah, that's right. Other people can pray for me. And Jesus is interceding for me. And the Spirit prays for me. And, um, and so we want to be the kind of church that's eager to pray for one another. I really like what Oz Guinness said. He said, um, Evil is not a problem because God is too small, though doing his best but because God is so great that we cannot be expected to know what he's doing. So this is the situation. It's not that bad things happen to us because God is up in heaven going, ah, I don't know what to do. Right? It's not that he is incapable of helping us. It's that his plans are so big, so sovereign, so all-encompassing that we can't, with our finite minds, fathom what he's up to. And so it's then we, that we fail to see God's hand at work because we simply can't fathom what he might be doing. Like, this is, this is how we need to approach God in these times. We need to be like his children, just like he says we are. We're his children, he's our father, and like a good father, he is both powerful and good. 
And, and so what I want from my kids, right, when they ask me for chocolate for breakfast, and I say to them, no, you can't have chocolate for breakfast, I want them to say, well, you know best, Daddy. <laughs> right? Which is exactly what you say, right, India? That's... Now, if they understood the world rightly, that's exactly what they'd say, because they would say, India would say, I'm six, I'm exceedingly precocious, but I'm not all-knowing, and Dad has had six times the life that I have, so I'll trust him with this. And, and if that's true, then how much more should that be the case for us? We have an all-knowing sovereign Father who is both powerful and good, and there are often times where we just need to sit back and say, I trust you. I don't understand, but I trust you. This is because this just this resonates so much with my experience. I love the poetry of William Cooper. He was a one of the, one of the great English poets, um, and but he he struggled just with the most heart wrenching depression. Uh, he knew all of the great doctrines of Christianity and believed that none of them applied to him. He believed that everyone was a recipient of God's love except for him. He believed that he alone was damned and beyond repair. And he went through periods of depression in his life that led him to multiple suicide attempts. And he was also an incredible poet. And he wrote, along with his friend and mentor, John Newton, he wrote many, many hymns. And one of them is called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Just let me read a few verses for you. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. So God is all-powerful, and then he encourages Christians, Ye fearful saints, Fresh courage take, the clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. That's the God that we serve. He is, he's got this. He's got this, right? Whatever circumstances you're in right now, he's got it. And though we might perceive with our eyes, which lack insight, we might perceive him to have this frowning providence. We might see dark clouds. What Cooper is encouraging us to do is to see that those clouds are, at some point are going to break with blessings. That behind the frowning providence, they're, they're high, there's hidden a, a smiling face. That there is a God of love and mercy and compassion behind every frowning providence. And we need to trust him. Need to trust him for his grace. And so it was with the people of Israel in, in Egypt at this point. They couldn't see God's works in, in manifest miraculous power. He hadn't yet come and just broken in to the natural world in the way that he would at some point in the future. At this point, he was just working his plan with a hidden hand. And into that, into that context, the people of Israel trusted him and were obedient to him. So here's the big idea I want us to take away. And if this is the only thing you remember, make it this, right? 
Strong confidence in the purposes of God enables courageous obedience to the will of God. What we need, and this is why we bang on about this all the time, you guys are probably sick of it by now, hearing about how God is sovereign and good, but we, the reason we need to know this so much is so that we can, we can have strong confidence that God has purposes and plans that he's working out even in the, in the darkest places. And that because we can have confidence in that, it enables us, it sets us free, it liberates us to live courageous, obedient lives. Come what may, the, the heavens fall, we're going to have courage to obey God's will for us because we can trust him to be good and to be working out his plans and purposes. So the way this plays out uh, in this text is in the lives of some very remarkable women. In, between this week and next week, you're just going to see a lineup of very remarkable women. Next week, we're going to see it in uh, Moses and his mom, in Pharaoh's daughter, and we're going to see the way God just absolutely turns history by his providence to bring about his purposes against the most overwhelming odds. And the same is true here with these midwives, all right? So if you want to check it out, verse 15 to 16, here's what happens. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. And verse 22, then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw, in, throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. All right, so plan A was death by work. That didn't work. The, 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 the people of Israel just grew more fruitful. There was more of them, right? And so the next plan B is kill all the baby boys. It's a bit of a leap, but this is the kind of character we're dealing with. You're going to see this. Pharaoh is crazy. He is crazy. And, we, and I, like we, get all, we get all worked up about Trump tweets, right? That's one thing. This is a whole other level, all right? Things don't go your way. Kill all the baby boys. That's his, that's his big plan. And it puts God's promise under massive threat because if you've got no boys, you've got no people, you've got no promise. And then therefore there's no redemption. So it's a massive threat, not only to the people of Israel, but therefore to God's promise and his plan of redemption. And, and, and you just got to ask yourself the question, what do, you, what do you do? If you're living in this time, in this place, and the most powerful man in the world says, we're taking all of your sons and we're going to chuck them to the crocodiles. What do you do? Who do you appeal to? You, you don't call up the cops. They're the ones coming to take the kids. You, like, you, you can't appeal to the government. The government has instituted the decree. There's no one you can turn to. You are living in and under the thumb of the most powerful man in the world, and he wants your boys. He wants all of your boys. Now, the midwives are faced with this situation, they are being made the instruments of Pharaoh's genocide. He's saying to them, you're the key to this plan, right? You see a baby boy come out of the womb, you kill it. 
And these beautiful women decide that they're going to fear God more than they fear men, even the greatest of men. So verse 17, the midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Wonderful example for us. I don't know about you guys, I, I really don't, but my, my Christian life up to this point has been 17 years of struggling with this. It's been 17 years, 16, 17 years of asking God to change my heart so that I would fear him more than I feared men. Like my first few years of being a Christian were just constantly failing at every hurdle when it came to this issue. I remember, <laughs> this just came to mind, I'd totally forgotten about this, but I, I remember coming back, I became a Christian in America, I came back here, first night I went out, um, I was already scared because I wasn't going to drink the way that I used to drink before I became a Christian, and I knew my friends would be really disappointed in me, because that's pretty much why they liked me in the first place. So I had that, and I was stressing out about that, and then I was talking to this girl I knew was from another school, and um, she asked me what was going on, what I was going to do now that I was back from overseas, and the truth was I wanted to become a chaplain and work as a chaplain in a high school. But when it came to forming the word chaplain, what came out instead was counsellor, because counsellor sounds so less, you know, like Christian than chaplain does. And I, you know, I just want to help people and, you know, just chat to kids and really... And that pattern just repeated itself over and over again. Whenever it came to a choice between fearing God or even just, I don't know, being true to what I believed, I would constantly fail. The truth was, as, uh, as William Gurnell said, that he's a, a Puritan, he said... The reason we fear men so much is because we fear God so little. And that's true. That's true of me. When you hear the Bible talking about the fear of God, I think it's best to think about it in terms of, of this, this sensation you have when you're in awe of something, right? Like when you're standing at the Grand Canyon or in front of a, an awesome waterfall or a, a brilliant piece of artwork or... Or, or, or sitting in front of me at church, like that kind of se- that sense of that's that sense of awe. That's what the fear of God is. Or maybe maybe you've been stuck somewhere out, like like camping out in the wilderness when a huge thunderstorm has come through, and 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 the, and the power of that electrical storm, the, the lightning and the, the, the thunder that rings in your ears for minutes after it's gone by. It's, the, it's that sense of awe. And, and that comes over any one of us whenever we see God for who he truly is. That's who God truly is. He's awesome. And we're going to see it later in the book of Exodus at, at Mount Sinai, the, the awesome power of God just being who he is. He doesn't have to try to be awesome. That's just He, he is awesome incarnate, right? And, and these women chose to fear God more than they feared Pharaoh because they understood that God is awesome. He is the creator and the sustainer of all things. All things were made by him 
and through him and for him. And when we come to that sweet realisation, it's then that we can start living consistent Christian lives. It's then that we can start making all of life all about Jesus. If you don't fall before God and just acknowledge him for the awesome, sovereign king that he is, then you're always going to struggle to live the Christian life. So these women, these beautiful women, choose to fear God more than they fear Pharaoh. And you don't want to underplay this. Like, they know they're choosing one God over a man who thinks he's God and a man who will put them to death without even thinking about it. And in this case, it turns out really well for them. All right, So verse uh, 20 and 21, So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. Again, this theme, God just keeps winning. Even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. It turns out really well for them, but we, we, shouldn't be, we shouldn't be misled about this. It doesn't always go well for people when they choose to fear God more than they choose to fear men. It doesn't always go well. And I love how honest the Bible is about this. So if you're here tonight, and, and maybe for the first time you're, you're wrestling with this issue and you're thinking, yeah, I, this sounds like a good idea to me. This sounds like something that maybe God has created me for, to, to live in awe of him, to fear him more than I fear my friends at school, or even my teachers at school, or even my boss at work, or my co-workers. He, he's calling me to fear him more, such that I would trust him and be obedient to him, come what may. Well, you need to know it doesn't always work out well. I have this picture in my mind of Jeremiah, right? Jeremiah called by God to go and prophesy to the people of God, and all he does is, is be obedient to God. He fears God more than he fears people, and the, the people reject him and reject him and reject him, but he fears God more than he fears the people, and the people lock him up and they beat him, but he fears God more than he fears people, and it just comes to the point after one last rejection where he says to God, you have seduced me. It's the language he uses. You told me to go and do this and to, to do your will, to fear you more than I fear the people, and you've seduced me. You've deceived me. Nothing's gone well for me. How many times have I met with some of you guys and you've said, you know, since I've become a Christian, my life has sucked. Amen. Me too. John the Baptist, right? Preparing the way for the Lord. He sees Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's finally happened. God has sent his Messiah. Now this is, you know, it's all going to happen now. And then he gets arrested. He gets put in jail. And he says, he sends people to Jesus and says, Are you really the one I was looking for? And because he fears God more than he fears men, he calls out the sin of the king and he ends up with his head on a platter. That's, that's what happens sometimes when we fear God more than we fear men. But I want to encourage us in that. The reason people like you and me can live making all of life all about Jesus, even to the point of having their head cut off, the reason they can do that is because they trust in a God who is both sovereign and good. They trust him for his purposes to be worked out 
in their lives, come what may. They're not anxious about the ends, but are concerned to live day by day in obedience to the Lord Jesus. We would save ourselves so much anxiety, friends. Listen, anxiety. We have this epidemic of anxiety in our churches and outside of them. And I feel like we would save ourselves so much anxiety if we stopped trying to control the ends and just live day by day in obedience to what God has called us to do. That would be so liberating for people like you and people like me. It would be so liberating if we said, and, just, and, just, and, and, and I know some anxiety is driven by things outside of our, our control, but much of it, I think, would just fade away if we would determine, as the people of God, to live in day-by-day obedience to what is revealed and trusting him for the ends, for the outcomes. Jesus said, in this world, you will experience trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. That's the God who we serve. That's the God who we trust. That's the God who I'm going to pray for. I pray too on our behalf. Let's pray. Father, we just acknowledge you as the King of kings, as the Lord of lords. We confess, we admit that so often we try to be the sovereign of our own lives. We try to be our own gods. We try to control every outcome. But we know you're calling us to something greater, something far more freeing than that. I pray for these people gathered here, these brothers and sisters. I pray for myself. Lord, please call us to a a radical confidence in your sovereign purposes and plans. You are our Father. You are good. You are powerful. You never take your hands off the wheel. I pray that we will trust you. And I pray that as we trust you, we would experience a beautiful liberation. That as we trust you and as we take heart and take courage and and choose to obey you day by day, that you would give us a sweet sense of serenity. Lord, you've said to us, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. May we do it. In Jesus' name, amen.